Hello, we are joined today by two eminent academics at the University of Work, and I will allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Jack Cohen. I'm a reproductive biologist. I've been involved in teaching evolution for most of my life, and I'm, um, I've been honoured by uh, Warwick University. They've given me an honorary professorship in the Ma- Institute of Mathematics. And uh, I'm Steve Fuller. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Warwick. I've been a professor here since 1999. My original training is in a history and philosophy of science, uh, and largely uh, on the basis of the work I've done in that area and also in the sociology of science, uh, I've been asked to be a, an expert witness in the uh, current trial cr- concerning uh, evolution and intelligent design in the United States. And in fact, that's why we're here today, to talk about intelligent design and to talk about the arguments surrounding that and to talk about your recent testimony given in trials in the US. Steve, could you tell us about that? Well, the first thing to understand uh, is that uh, in the United States, the educational system is completely decentralized. There is no national ministry of education that lays out a national curriculum. So in a sense, uh, it's always possible for particular school boards to take decisions concerning what's taught in textbooks that then can be contested and then may or may not have significance in the larger uh, society as a whole. And over the years, especially since 1925, the so-called Scopes trial, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the, the, the place of evolution and what has been called creationism in the teaching of science in the United States. Uh, and I've been asked to participate in the latest of these trials, which is in the state of Pennsylvania, Kitzmiller versus uh, the Dover area uh, school, uh, school board. Uh, and I am testifying for the defense. And the defense consists of people who want to introduce this idea of intelligent design, uh, which, uh, which, historically speaking, does descend from what has been called creationism, but now provides a kind of sort of scientific basis, or at least attempts to, and the people practicing it have scientific degrees uh, and are uh, trying to uh, basically promote this as kind of an alternative for evolution to evolution that uh, students uh, in ninth grade, which is to say 15-year-olds, uh, ought to be studying. And, Jack, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is that they're good biochemists, they're bringing lots of biochemical information, so they look as if they're dressed in the robes of science. But actually they're making a point which is based on intellectual laziness and ignorance, and they're saying this can't happen by the so several things, the bacterium, bacterial flagellum, which we'll talk about later, the blood clotting of, of human blood, which is a very complicated biochemical cascade, and they say that these things cannot have been produced by ordinary Darwinian evolution. So, Steve, lazy science dressed up as politics, or politics dressed up as lazy science, what's the answer? Well, I think it's easy to get that impression because... Um, there are a couple of things going on in, in the particular case here, uh, and this is quite common to these kind of evolution versus creation intelligent design cases in the United States. Um, there's a kind of local school board issue of, of what textbook to adopt. And if one were just focusing on the textbook, which uh, the key one being pandas and people, um, that book actually has descended, you might say evolved, from a <laughs> strict creationist text in the 80s to one that has incorporated more and more of the intelligent design stuff and the kind of examples uh, that Jack was just mentioning concerning the b- bacteria flagellum and so forth. So one can easily have this kind of suspicion, okay, this is kind of like the path of least resistance for creationism to get into science. 
Right. But my point about this would be, first of all, the kind of people who are involved in intelligent design are actually a radically different group of people from the people who've been involved in creationism, even though the publishers are kind of the same and they've been carrying it along. So uh, people like uh, William Dembski, uh, whose uh, degrees are in mathematics and philosophy, and Behe, who has a degree in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, these guys are really, you know, they're not not, uh, uh, people who do biblical interpretation for a living, which was often the case with some of the people who previously had been called creationists. And moreover, the criticisms that Behe and Dembski get uh, are criticisms that can be couched uh, purely in the coin of science. That there's a sense in which no one actually needs to refer to their religious beliefs, which are, indeed, they are devout Christians, they don't deny this, um, in order to be able to sort of meet the kinds of arguments they're making. So it's a kind of quite a different sort of uh, issue from previous trials. So can... can... The, the arguments for intelligent design be legitimately couched in the coin of science? Well, they can. And, and there's been a good attempt to do this. Dembski particularly has got together the scientific philosopher and has produced a series of essays for and against ID. And unfortunately, it turns out for him that, that several of these essays are, I think, science saying, look, this is nonsense. You say that there is no way in which the the bacterial flagellum can be approached by a stepwise evolution, and yet one of these essays shows very clearly that structures on other bacteria, not actually a flagellum, but using much the same proteins, are the way in which the the bacterium affects other cells. It's there in other bacteria. It's halfway to a flagellum. It looks like a good case. Um, What Dembski and Behe and, and lots of other people have done is to couch this in scientific terms. As I said, they're dressed in scientific robes. But what they're producing is an empty hypothesis. There are many of these in the history of science. Many people have said, hey, just a minute, if you look at it this way, it looks like this. And they're saying that, and I think honestly. But they're wrong. Do do you believe they're wrong? Do you believe that the the science that that is being used to legitimise ID is wrong? No, I don't believe it's wrong. I mean, if if ID suffers from anything, uh, it suffers from underdevelopment. uh, and, uh, And it seems to me this is the crucial issue with regard to the court case, because uh, at what stage in the development of a, of, a, of a scientific research program is it legitimate to bring it into the high school classroom? Absolutely. Uh, and um, it seems to me a lot depends then on what kind of image of science are you do you want to convey to students who may perhaps be contemplating going into a scientific career and so forth, because it's very easy, especially given the way curricula are designed, to give the impression that science is just a sort of dogmatic set of theories and facts and mm. so forth that you sort of force feed to students, and it's often very difficult to sort of think outside the box, as it were, because you're so worried about, uh, you know, f- doing exams and getting things correct and so forth, and science, of course, has the reputation of having, as it were, the hardest knowledge base of anything else. So you're promoting design as a foil for accepted science? Uh, I am, but I think, in fact, there's a good historical precedent for this kind of way of doing things. Uh, And and again, this points to another, I think uh, you might say, uh, strategic or tactical problem with intelligent design at the moment is it's not sufficiently acquainted with its own backstory. 
so there's a sense in which the whole argument at the moment rides on whatever Behe and Dembski says. And so one gets the impression that the history of this thing is, okay, we began with the kind of creationist stuff, which was entirely suspect because it was based on the Bible, and then it somehow evolved, as it were, the next generation becomes these two guys and maybe a couple of other people who are trying to find holes in evolutionary theory, and that's the sort of the sum total of what the intelligent design argument is. But in fact, intelligent design, and at least this is what I testified to in court, uh, is actually a particular way of looking at uh, what science is about. And for me, and this is, I actually said this under oath, I think that the 400-pound gorilla of intelligent design theory is Isaac Newton, who's the original guy who thought he could get into the mind of God and come up with some kind of intelligent design of the universe. Well, I, I think it's a pity that Steve laid himself open by saying that in the court. I think that I, I, I've read what he says about Isaac Newton, and it's a very interesting sociological point. However, it would be let us we can take this into another scientific discourse. And I know that Steve is very familiar with doing this kind of thing. Let me try and take him on his own ground. There was a theory about phlogiston. People thought that when substances burned, they gave out material, because it looks like that, not that they took in oxygen. Mm -hmm. And this theory was pretty respectable among people who were taking the jump from alchemy to chemistry. And then it was found that you, instead of talking about a substance that had negative weight, it was much easier to... Ref just as it was much easier to put the sun rather than the earth in the centre of the solar system, uh, it was much easier to say it's oxygen going in, not phlogiston coming out. Now, I think that we are in this kind of position. I think what has happened here is that the intelligent design people have picked up a phlogiston hypothesis and that there are three things wrong. The first is the theologians who are using this as the star to hitch their wagon to are, forgive that metaphor, are doing the wrong thing because this is going to crash in flames. This is a hypothesis which is never going to make it into a theory. The second thing that's happening here I think is wrong is that Behe and Dembski and the biochemists who are putting this up are putting up a very bad bit of biology because they haven't understood what evolution is about. Not modern evolution, that's for sure true. They haven't read anything after about 1980, it seems. But they, and this is when they presumably did their degrees, and a lot of people don't read very much after they do their degrees. But it seems to me they're not up, and they needn't be. Because what they're presenting is something which they say, in principle, cannot be addressed by the kind of evolutionary thinking we're thinking about. And I think that's, that's what um, uh, mm -hmm. Steve is doing, by putting it into a much larger discourse. But there's a third thing, and it's much, it's much worse. Steve is saying that, yes, there are syllabuses. Yes, we ought to decide which science can go into them. And we do put a lot of science into these syllabuses that we're fairly sure of. We're fairly sure about the sun and the earth. We're fairly sure about the fertilization theory, of sperms and eggs for m development. We're fairly sure about atoms and electrons and what happens in an atom bomb and what happens in a power station. And these things are put there for the students. Now, this particular bit, ID, hasn't had the kind of critical look given to it, or it has, but as far as the school board is concerned, it still looks like a good idea, because the, the school board people and the teachers 
are the people who have not been in this professionally and they don't see what's wrong with it. So essentially you're saying that ID has not had the historical testing that many of the other uh, common scientific theories have. Absolutely. It has not sat there as a theory. The facts of science... I'm taking its beating, as it were. (laughs) Yes. The facts of science are always suspect. Everyone says, and the textbooks I'm sure that, that Steve has looked at, said it's the facts of science that you can rely on. Well, mostly you can't, because the facts have been collected by people who really wanted a particular thing to be true, and they've collected them in ways... That the sociologists are absolutely right about this. They've collected them in ways which are biased, they're partial, they're, they're really very difficult. But the theories of science are really something you can rely on. The theory of gravity as a way of explaining things has sat there for a long time. ID is a theory that has not earned its spurs, has not been tested. Steve, do you agree? Well, uh, there's there's a lot to answer here. First of all, uh, every new theory is born refuted, and there is a question as to when you start to actually teach it. And in <laughs> fact, if you, were to, if you were to look at the Scopes trial in 1925, Darwin's own theory of evolution which had yet to really get mated together with genetics, was seen as a dead dodo, actually, and, and that there were some desperate efforts to try to hook it up with eugenics, but there was still no clear agreement over what the mechanism was of natural selection, genetically speaking. Uh, yet that didn't seem to uh, bother the people who were promoting it at the time. So there is a sense in which you never actually, get, you know, when is the point where the theory is actually sufficiently well-supported to actually be able to teach it? I mean, it seems to me here, one has to keep in mind what the point of teaching science is. The point of teaching, and and, and philosophy draws a very important distinction that I brought up in the trial, uh, and that's the difference between the context of discovery and the context of justification. And And when we're talking about teaching, we're talking about the context of discovery. That is to say, we're talking about not how to get people to believe things that other people have already tested, but how to open people's minds to actually have a kind of scientific imagination. And so from what standpoint should one have? And here's where the issue of design becomes very heuristically valuable, namely getting into the idea of the mind of God. That has been incredibly influential. In fact, what the mechanical philosophy was about, which started the scientific revolution, was basically a bunch of nonconformist Protestants who basically thought they could figure out how creation worked by reverse engineering it and coming up with the fundamental principles. <laughs> and in a sense, intelligent design yeah. isn't reinventing, it's trying to reinvent that kind of sentiment now. Now, it is harder nowadays to have this kind of sentiment for largely sociological reasons. Uh, and this has a lot to do with the massive amount of resources that are necessary, first of all, to get the requisite training, to get the re- requisite access, let's say, to lab equipment, students, prestige, whatever, to be able to mount effective research programs. And so from that standpoint, the scientific theory that's regarded as dominant at the moment actually has a lot more dominance now than it has had in the past. And so it becomes ha- much ha- harder to actually mount a kind of opposition or resistance, uh, because it's not at all clear how people are going to find out about it. Um, And um, so from that standpoint, if you actually want to get students thinking critically and reflectively about the, you know, the fundamental basis of, let's say, the nature of life or something, you have to kind of seed that in early on because it's not at all clear, given the way in which science education proceeds, that those alternatives will ever be, uh, be pre- presented. And, and moreover, in the trial, Behe says he can't get any uh, support. He has no graduate students. Uh, and this is not uncommon, okay? Uh, there might be a reason for that, of course. <laughs> and 
what is the reason? <laughs> well, there might be a reason that no one believes a word he's saying and no one goes along and with it. And that's quite obvious. And that happens at the very beginning of any kind of scientific theory. Absolutely. And, it's just, and in the past, it just wasn't so hard, as it were, to get the kind of resources that were necessary because there were many fewer people doing science. There was a lot less at stake in doing science. It was very much an intellectual game back in the old days. Let me come in. Yeah. There are... What Steve says is absolutely right. I have tremendous sympathy with it, except for one thing. We now have the Internet. So that people who are now criticizing, for example, Behe, can go in and find all kinds of tricks. I wanted to criticize Behe and Dembski for one particular stance they take. They talk about the bacterial flagellum. They talk about the blood clotting cascade and they say and this is a good argument superficially you can't reach it by adding things and adding things and then finally getting to the top because if you take away anything there now it stops working so there has to be a time when, if you've got n components, there was n minus one and it didn't work and therefore you can't possibly get there. Now that goes there are so many ways of getting there, like building scaffolding and taking stuff away and all kinds of other ways of doing it, changing the function of the thing, which is, seems to be what has actually happened with the bacterial flagellum. Behe particularly admires Darwin for saying the evolution of the eye was like this. It started with a patch of light-sensitive cells, and then, look, this organism has that at the moment, then it's became a little cup look this organism has this at the moment and they made a comparative study and found a ladder up to the vertebrate eye and b he said that was marvelous he said brilliant was the word he used now they haven't tried to do that with their uh, for, for the reason steve gibbs they had they believed it to be too difficult to do that in today's biochemical world I went over to the, to the library in Birmingham, the library here in Warwick, and it took me three days, and I found a whole lot of steps leading up to the flagellum, bacterial flagellum, and a whole lot of steps leading up to the blood clotting cascade. It isn't the one. It's a one. Um, first of all, if you've noticed the way Jack couched things, uh, natural selection is, being, is taking credit for a lot of things here. It's basically every kind of possibilistic argument that can be given as to how we end up getting to the bacterium flagellum. Every one of them that's possible, natural selection takes credit for. It makes one wonder whether natural selection is falsifiable at all under the circumstances. And I think this is one of the things that I think bothers a lot of these intelligent design people, namely that um, there's a sense in which... Um, uh, the neo-Darwinian uh, synthesis sort of controls so much of the game, as it were, that it gets credit for a wide range of possible explanations, none of which can ever be empirically tested in any kind of direct way, but nevertheless they get credit for them, whereas intelligent design has to end up with some kind of outlier explanation in order to have any credibility at all. And my point is, given that the, uh, the actual explanation of why the bacterium flagellum is as it is, is a quite an open question, even though there are all these possibilities that could involve yeah. pathways in natural selection. Why shouldn't that allow the possibility for an alternative explanatory framework to develop? You see, because it's not like the evolutionists have actually nailed down the actual explanation. What they've done is they've sort of bought rights to a sort of possibilistic real estate, okay? Uh, and, and that indicates the degree to which they have dominance over the entire field. And I think from the standpoint of the health of science, one wants to wonder, is that really the way to go? Uh, you know, especially if you're thinking about the next generation of students who are going to be going into science. Uh, and by the way, it, with regard to the Internet point, 
which is a very interesting one. It was through the Internet that the school board actually discovered intelligent design. Uh, okay, so uh, there's an ironic twist to all this because uh, these, in, these, these school board people, and I can tell you firsthand, you know, they're a humble lot, okay, and none of them have any kind of pretenses to scientific knowledge or anything. They are people who actually, in American culture, are quite used to making the separation between science and religion. So even though they're all quite, most of them are quite devout, normally speaking, they wouldn't get kind of all these kind of religiously inspired notions into the science curriculum, but it was actually through the internet, by reading about intelligent design theory, I mean, mainly through the Discovery Institute in Seattle, which sort of promotes this stuff as a sort of special mm. interest thing, um, that they said, wow, it may actually be that our religious beliefs and our scientific beliefs can somehow converge or coincide with each other. Yeah. So the internet is actually responsible for getting these people to sort of, uh, you know, get on board with intelligent design in the first place, because it's a very sophisticated, as you know, it's a very sophisticated thing. It's not the sort of thing ordinary people would normally run across. And so it was through the internet where the connections were made for them that they thought, oh, okay, my science and religion maybe can match up together. So the internet cuts both ways on this. It's but actually responsible for this trial. Jack. Well, the, yes, fine. But the internet has actually come in with some rather humorous things since this, which we'll come to in a moment. What Steve said was, the, um, I, agree, I agree with him completely that the neo-Darwinist view, natural selection, has been used as an absolute coverall, as a big tent covering every conceivable explanation of the way we see organisms at the moment in the popular uh, in, in, uh, the kind of pop science view is that everything can be explained by this in people who actually work among people who actually work with um, evolution however that isn't the case there are all kinds of puzzling situations where it's certainly the case where for example feathers appear on reptiles long before they flew and where the, 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 there's a change of function where the, the fish that came out of the water we have fossils of fish with little legs but they also have internal gills which means that they were under the water at the time when they developed their legs there are all kinds of situations where the original just so story absolutely doesn't work and where people have suggested all kinds of other issues um i i was present when one of these was discovered it was a very nice one the stick insects you know what stick insects look like stick insects a lot of them have eggs that look like seeds and they are greatly preferred by little carnivores like birds and ants and beetles, they would rather eat those than they would eat seeds. And this was a big problem for natural selection because it looked as if it was absolutely crazy. It looked like a disproof of a natural selection situation. And then I think it was in 1992, after a big fire near Brisbane, all of the eucalypt forest had burnt down and some biologists were walking along and the little shoots were coming up and on the little shoots were baby stick insects. And they said, hey, where have they been during the fire? And the answer was they'd been taken down into ants' nests because they were so attractive to the ants. Now, that was a case that was a real puzzle. OK, so there's, there's a case where it's, it's, it's been worked through. What Steve is saying is it's impossible to prove a negative. And in fact, um, evolution is providing such, such an, an umbrella argument, the idea that, that there's no place for ID. Precisely. No, no one is giving a place for Precisely. We can <laughs> prove the negative. And that's all we can do. But every single new species which appears 
and we look at its DNA, has the same DNA that we, has the DNA that we would expect if these were all related by common descent. Every one of them is a potential disproof. Every new organism that we find. And each Which one... Which conception of common descent are you working with? Are you working with one that's based on animal morphology or on genetics? Because there's a debate going on within the, the whole... The two conform almost always. Well, yeah, but there's some key differences. There are some key, and they're very I'm interesting sorry, stop differences. Can one of you just, just, just explain those two terms to me? Uh, animal morphology and genetics, Steve? Well, whether the, the, the shapes of the animals look the same, the physiology and so forth, or do you actually look at something like the DNA? But there are still certain issues that stand out, and one is how you actually define common descent, uh, where you actually still have some conflict that reflects some of those old fissures. Isn't it a fact that 15-year-olds in Pennsylvania, as a result of this trial, could be ta- could be taught complete cobblers? Well, they can anyway, but any science... You should look at what ordinary biology textbooks are like. I mean, that was one thing that came up in the trial. I mean, the, 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 the sort of state-of-the-art evolutionary biology text in terms of stating fundamental principles of evolution, were highly contested because this, this kind of loose use of the word random, for example, with regard to random mutations. There was much worse than that. Um, in about 1965, there was a radical change in the way that biologists thought about the genetics of populations. Up till then, it was thought that all of the organisms in a wild population had much the same genetics, with a few that had mutations, the, the general mutation theory. And this is what folk genetics has still. This is this is why you have um, films with the mutant who becomes telepathic or <laughs> something else. And uh, usually nowadays because he touches some DNA of somebody else. You could bathe in donkey DNA and not turn into a donkey, you know. But according to the film people, that isn't so. It really seems that, you know, Jurassic Park and all that. Yes. Right. They're great and exciting films, but they're not related to the kind of biology that we want these kids to learn in school. What happens, however, is that the teachers haven't caught on to the fact that since about 1965, real examination of wild populations has shown that they're not like that at all. They're not Ford Model Ts with occasional mutations up, good headlights, or mutations down, a dent in the side. What a normal wild population is like is a whole lot of different handmade cars all adjusted more or less the same oh I'm sorry say it again handmade cars all adjusted differently to give much the same result we three have received different versions of genes from our parents we about 10 percent of the genes, the, the, the 30,000 genes or so that we have, we have received two different versions of very ancient mutations. Some of these mutations were 400 million years ago, and the, there have been several versions of the gene going right through since then. We're not talking about mutations occurring now, and does it work or doesn't it, which is the folk view. We're talking about every single new organism being a recombination of ancient mutations. So there's a tremendous amount of potential difference. Darwin knew this. He looked at dogs. He looked at pigeons. He was very aware that the amount of variation in the original domestic creatures was enough to get you Labradors and Great Danes and um, and Ducks Hunts. Biologists have in general failed to get over the point that biology changes all the time, the way in which it has changed over the last 40 years. 
physicists had a very good press in this. We know about Einstein. We know about the haircut, at least. Um, we don't... People do not follow biology like that. And the biology which is going into the textbooks is 1950s, 1960s biology. Perhaps that's right. Perhaps this is the stuff which is where the theories have been around long enough that they're more or less acceptable. But it's very difficult with science. Scientists change their minds. Science is not the truth. My colleague Ian Stewart at this university says science is our best defence against believing what we want to. Not our best shield so that we can continue to believe what we want to. But our best defence against believing what we want to, Steve. Well, I certainly agree with that, and I think it's always worth pointing out in contexts like this that the person who's normally regarded as the the father of the scientific method in the in the modern era, Francis Bacon, was a lawyer, not a scientist. <laughs> yes, um, well, there weren't and, any scientists yet. Come well, on. no, but still, at the same time, I think it's very important because um, for him, I mean, the reason why he thought the, that a lawyer you know, had a special kind of expertise in this matter was because uh, when, you do, uh, when you do experiments, when you do any kind of empirical work, there's a sense in which people are making all kinds of, uh, uh, well, at, in his day, metaphysical, religious, political kinds of claims that compete with each other. And at the end of the day, you want to say, well, what does it, you know, how does it matter on the ground? To what extent does it explain what we want to have explained? To what extent does it enable us to have power over the kinds of things we want yes. to have power over? Bacon is, from, is famous for the phrase, knowledge is power. And it's in that context, you know, he developed ideas like the crucial experiment and a kind of the, the sort of descendant of that notion, which actually gets invoked in a lot of these court proceedings in America, the idea of testability. Um, and so the, the fact that we don't have scientists making decisions about what's in the science textbooks for a public school system in the United States, I don't think is intrinsically a problem. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of issues here, and, and, they don't, and, and they go beyond whether scientists themselves are very good self-publicists on this, because I think this, they're factors, in a sense, they don't have that much control over. And one of them has to do with trying to get your textbook marketed to school districts. Sure. Uh, and there, uh, the standard procedure has been, so you have to imagine, right, we have 50 states in the United States, each of which is broken down to local school districts, each of which take their own decisions uh, through parents and teachers' organizations. Okay, So it's all very, very localized, and you have publishers competing to get all these textbooks accepted on, on a kind of district-by-district basis, basically. And that's why all these court cases always arise so locally, and there's no national resolution. Well, the idea then is when you write a textbook, for the most part, most of the textbook is going to be pretty uncontroversial. It's going to be kind of, you know, like the uh, physiology of the frog, you know, the parts of the flower. I mean, it's going to be that kind of stuff. And then there will be some chapters, right, which will try to give kind of, a, you know, more theoretical kind of breadth to it. When I was a student, for example, uh, it was very big to sort of contrast uh, Darwin with, uh, with Lamarck, oh. who had this view, view of the uh, inheritance of acquired traits, and that was kind of an interesting thing to talk about. Um, and, and so the issue, especially if you look at the way in which biology is actually taught in the high schools, the kinds of issues that we're talking about here really only become instrumental, maybe in like one week or a couple of classes or something, in terms of where they're actually the, the focus of discussion, if people actually ever get that far into it, okay? Um, and and so from that standpoint, you know, one shouldn't worry that in a sense, uh, if we actually do talk about intelligent design, we're sort of undermining all of the biology teaching that's taken place before then, because all biology textbooks will have basically sort of the basic subject matter and so forth laid out in them. Uh, if they're going to, because at the end of the day, there has to be some sort of state board licensing thing where students have to be able to pass tests and so forth. Mm, Jack. 
I'm very unhappy about that. Although it's only a couple of uh, a couple of uh, lessons in which it happens, the basis, the theoretical basis, the overarching philosophy of ID says, look, there are some questions in the natural world to which we can give the answer. This cannot have been a natural phenomenon. It must have been done by a supernatural agency. Now, the moment you do that, it seems to me, you're out of the field of science. And you're into philosophy or you're into religion? Uh, or... Or, no, what you've done is, in a sense, backed off from the kind of explanation that since Bacon scientists have preferred um, I when I listen to scientists when I look when I read Steve's thing it seems to me he does a lot of good things he says I don't know in a lot of places and I think I don't know is preferable to something out there did it they've set up an intelligent designer out there they've said these bits of the observed world, like bacterial flagellum, require an explanation of a kind which is just outside the frame in which scientists normally move. And if you have that in a school lesson, if you say in a school lesson to the children, well, look, there are the following ways of losing a baby. You can actually do this or this or this, or aliens might take you and take out your baby. And that would be regarded as mad, wouldn't it? And that's what they're doing. They're saying, you can get this structure either by this or by this or by natural selection or by intelligent design by something else out there. That's the fundamental argument, isn't it? That really ID is just a cop-out in terms of intellectual argument. It seems to me that the, uh, first of all, the kind of example that uh, Jack's just raised sort of trivializes what the intelligent design is about. I don't think any uh, defender of the intelligent design uh, theory uh, would would uh, subscribe They're to this. talking about an alien. Without well, look, any l- l- doubt. Let's put some perspective on this. It seems to me that it's quite uh, uh, easy in retrospect to say, oh, these people have these sort of supernatural beliefs that have no scientific basis whatsoever. But look, when you do the history of science, you realize that, in fact, a lot of things that we now uh, would uh, incorporate quite easily within naturalis- yes. naturalistic causation, in fact, had supernatural causes. So there is, hu- there is heuristic value that's been shown historically for actually appealing to certain things that seem to resist ordinary naturalistic explanations. Uh, One example um, has to do with this business uh, that gets trotted out actually by by people on your side of the argument um, who who say, well, look, you know, these Greeks before Hippocrates, they thought that the gods descended upon them and that's how disease was caused. Well, actually, if you look at the history behind people who held such views or seem to have held such views, they're in fact referring to things that look like prototypes to what we would now call the germ theory of disease, whereby disease is caused by something outside yourself that comes into you. They thought it was gods, but they had no sense of microbes or or what the invisible forces were, but they knew something was happening, and in that sense, it was actually heuristic for the development of biology and medicine. And just as I was saying earlier, with regard to Newton thinking he could get into the mind of God and, and therefore think look, if I were the creator, how would I created this universe, you know, and try to figure out the simplest way of doing it. And that's kind of how he comes up with his laws of motion. Okay, that is, getting yourself into the mind of the creator is a heuristic in the sense that you're sort of imagining reverse engineering something because you're imagining the universe as a created machine, which involves a mechanic. That was an incredibly influential heuristic in the scientific revolution and it was something that came about because you had these people who were nonconformist Protestants. They're people who believed that they were born in the image and likeness of God, but they didn't have to take orders from the church. 
right? So in a sense, they could directly, as it were, get into God's mind and figure things and out for themselves. Gravity, yeah. gravity, which came out of that, was precisely exactly. a supernatural idea. Um, Newton himself said, "I cannot imagine a force which extends between the planets." He suggested something which was supernatural, and this. I'm against in school. This is a, perhaps the very issue. So you're where against I'm most, bring, you wouldn't want to bring that up in school. You wouldn't I get wouldn't students want to, thinking like Newton. No, I would not. I would now want to say that gravity, as Newton said, was what we have to hold on to for the moment because it does give an overarching theory, which is, as you say, useful heuristically. I am in this position in my own research. I have shown over some 30 years that nearly all spermatozoa are rejected by females and a few are let through. Now, I've done um, experiments... Not perhaps of the kind of Newton, but I've done experiments and measurements which have attacked that from four different directions. The different populations, taking them out from the top, putting them at the bottom again, doing a variety of things which are consistent with the idea that only a few of them are any good. But I have no idea at all what the confession mechanism is inside those sperms. I really don't know. And I think that what should happen in the classes here, if it is the case that bacterial flagellum cannot find itself a story to build, the teacher should say, we don't know about the bacterial flagellum. Isn't that interesting? And we don't know about stick insect eggs. And we don't know about why we have sinuses. And we don't know about all these other things. But there should be the no reference to an intelligent designer but, at that sh- point. But the step there should be no from the I don't know to it must be done by something out there with supernatural powers is not science. I'm not a theist, so in a sense, uh, I don't. I couldn't care less whether the intelligent designer exists or not. In a sense, I don't think that really matters from the standpoint of whether intelligent design is worth teaching as science. It has to do with the heuristic value. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether Newton's God actually existed. The fact that he thought he existed and, had, and, and, that, and that he could in some way have access to that actually enabled him to do extremely good science by the standards of people who don't share his religious beliefs. And I think that's the point at the end of the day, namely that there has been a very strong heuristic value to people holding this kind of you know, creation mechanistic kind of view uh, with regard to doing science that then uh, manages to uh, uh, command the assent of people who don't actually share those assumptions. Okay, what Steve is saying is that ever see a lot of good science, in fact almost all of good science has been done by Christians. By theists. Think about it. Now, monotheists, actually. Monothe- monotheists. Okay, we go with Needham, who said that um, science right. wasn't invented in China because exactly. they were polytheists. Exactly. So, fine. Most science has been done by people who believe that there was an idea in the mind of God, and he was consistent. If you're a polytheist, you believe that it was all to do with the love life of the gods, and you can't tell why, why thunderstorms happen. It was because this one screwed that one, or whatever. But... Um, if you are monotheist, you believe there's one consistent idea in the mind of God, and therefore it's sensible to ask questions. But this is where we differ. I think that the good answer is, I don't know. And I think it's a cop-out to say it must be some 
uh, intelligent designer. I'm not for shaking your head. I'm not saying this. Okay, I mean maybe you know it's true that Behe and Dembski have these very deep sort of religious commitments, but my argument for including this has nothing to do with whether God exists or not. Right? It has well, to fine. do with the, with the heuristic value of it, in the sense that one of the things that it, it gets you to do, because I agree with your point, right? We don't know uh, whether particular things uh, having to do with the nature of life uh, work the way they're supposed to work. Yeah. But but the, but the, the heuristic value of having this idea of the intelligent designer is to actually encourage people to think of things in much more fundamental terms than you're talking about. Because you're sort of saying, we don't know within this kind of conceptual framework that to a large extent has already been filled out by neo-Darwinism, and now we're trying to fill in little gaps that we can't quite understand. But what the scientific revolution was about was people actually imagining they could get into the mind of God and think things through from scratch. And that's why it was such a revolution. And the thing is that there's not much in the line of, of encouragement for students to, as it were, think about science in those terms, namely from the standpoint of fundamental principles, uh, you know, which would then involve questioning in a very fundamental way kind of the taken-for-granted notions of science as it's currently being practiced. We're learning more and more about the way the brain picks up perceptions and makes concepts from them. And it's very clear to me that when Paley, and this is where the, the whole thing started, Paley, a theologian around 1800, wrote a book called Natural Theology in which he said, almost the first two pages, he says, if I found a watch upon the heath, I would know that there was a watchmaker. And there's a whole lot of history from this up to blind watchmaker with, with Richard Dawkins and everything. And he looked at that watch and he knew it was designed. Now, there is a, a very useful, different way of thinking about this. The whole question of the designer. What our designers really do is to go out into nature and they pick out things like golden sections and all kinds of things so that all of the stuff around us now, which is designed, has particular properties. We have got designed things in our minds. We look at this bottle, we look at the microphone, we know their design because of certain ratios and things. We've got a category. Now, Paley, who was a clergyman, hadn't much interest in nature. And he had grown up, like we all have, surrounded by artefacts. So that when he saw bones and tendons, or a, an eye, and it had the same th ratios and things as designed things, his perception of it made him put it into the concept designed. He couldn't imagine that they were not designed. When we have programmed ourselves to recognize designed things, and we see things in nature that look like that, we assume that they are designed. Now, that's to do, that's a theory, it's to do with the way our minds work. As far as I know, it's original to me. But it's a way of thinking about why people see design out in the world and need to find an intelligent designer when they see something which looks like a bit of mechanism. Mm. Well, I mean, I mean there, there is a genuine point of disagreement here, namely, and it has a lot to do with how you scope out the sciences, because, uh, I mean, as Jack has been saying, and I think this is quite true of uh, people, uh, you know, especially biologists, that there is supposed to be a very clear distinction between, as it were, uh, what is designed, which is artifactual, and mm -hmm. sort of nature, which has its kind of own way yes. of operating. Uh, and it is true, and I think this is a very important point about the difference between intelligent design and, and neo-Darwinism, is an intelligent design believes that the design of the universe and the design of artifacts, uh, that word design should be understood literally, right, in both cases. It's not a metaphor. 
Uh, and there's a sense in which what one is aiming for is a kind of overarching set of laws and principles and stuff like that. And so when you look at somebody like William Dembski, for example, um, he's actually trying to kind of, his fundamental move is to try to say, look, there is actually this kind of specify, mathematically specifiable category of design that, yeah. that as it were, is indifferent to life, non-life. Right, so in other words, biology and technology conceivably could be part of the same science. Right, that is that is uh, that is distinguishable from necessity and chance. So he has a kind of what he calls an explanatory filter. He says, well, if something's not necessary and something's not chance, then the only o- option left is is design. Now, of course, that's a lack of imagination. Come on. Well, no, no, no. Listen, uh, I mean, the point is, uh, it seems to me that there, yes, a lot of people has, have complained about this. But I, I think one of the, and, and it's not at all, and it's, of course, I don't think even he admits that he's actually nailed down how one actually na- sort of yeah, lays this out mathematically. His nonsense. His math is nonsense. Well, yes, that may be true. But I think the thing that's more important here is actually, he's actually looking at all this phenomena we're talking about in a, in a different way, which allows for the possibility that technology and biology are both equally designed in the same sense. And in a sense, whether the intelligent designer is a human or a creator like God doesn't matter. Or an because they, or the, the kind of structure that they have, mathematically specifiable in principle, is the same, right? Or at least of the same kind or the same general kind. And I think that's kind of the, the aim of the science. Now, the, the reason why I bring this up uh, is because, for two points, first of all, this this uh, science of intelligent design is really in its infancy in the new form we're talking about now in terms it of will, how it's being specified. There will be infanticide. There will be imp- it'll die. Wait, look, no, no, that's no. But the other point I'm bringing up here that's also important is that in a sense, um, if you want to think about what's evidence for this intelligent design theory, yeah. uh, you can't focus exclusively on the biological because in a sense the biological is only part of what they're that's actually trying to talk about. Yeah. They're trying to talk about technology artifacts as well, under the same theory. Okay, so there's a sense in which the th- the, the theories, uh, are, you know, they partially overlap in what they're covering, neo-Darwinism yes. and intelligent design, but they're not trying to explain exactly the same thing, and certainly not in the same way. I mean, the philosophy of science, we have this term... Uh, incommensurability. Yeah. That is to say, when you have paradigms that, in a sense, are, are dealing with similar phenomena, but they're operating with such radically different categories that it really cut the phenomena up in different ways at a very fundamental kind of level. And I think this is a good example, because what a neo-Darwinist would see as a kind of metaphor between technology and biology mm-hmm. with regard to the issue of design, uh, for people like uh, Dembski and the intelligent de- design guys, that's to be understood literally. Okay, And, and, and the, the point I would make as a precedent for this... Uh, is that one doesn't necessarily need to be a theist to think in these terms. Uh, uh, it, it seems to me, one, for people who are interested in following this kind of stuff up, and I must admit the intelligent design people themselves haven't really followed this lead up, but, but as it turns out, my PhD dissertation had something to do with it, ironically. And that's the idea of the, what Herbert Simon, uh, the uh, political scientist and economist, mm. called the sciences of the artificial. Okay, uh, and that is to say, to scope out phenomena, in principle, any kind of phenomena, including biological phenomena, as if it were designed. Uh, and so he talks, for example, about how natural selection could be simulated as a watchmaking project. Yeah. So he takes Paley on board and he yeah. says, okay, supposing I'm Paley's watchmaker and I'm kind of a watchmaker who gets interrupted a lot. You know, how would I have to construct the watch knowing I'm going to be interrupted so that actually we can get the sort of succession of life forms that we've had on the Earth? So there's a sense in which there's an attempt here from a very non-theistic standpoint to have a kind of universal science of design that in principle is indifferent yes. to life versus non-life. There are, there, are, there are several journals, design journals, which 
take this particular stance, whether they're designing buildings, whether they're designing machinery, and in a sense, the intelligent design people have taken their phrasing, just as Steve says. They say, look, we've got complicated things around us with an obvious purpose, a bicycle, a television, a telephone. We know they're designed and their, their complexity didn't just arise. We know that there was intelligence into their design. Well, in, there's a sense also in which they evolved, but that's another issue. Um, they are designed. Therefore, we know that complexity can be designed. We look at something like blood clotting cascade or a flagellum or an arm, and it looks to us like the kinds of things we design, which is exactly what Steve has just said, and therefore we say there must be an intelligent designer out there to do it. And I think it's a cop-out. I think it's a cop-out because we have another quite distinct mechanism, a natural selection of continually provided differences, not mutations, not random, not drunkard's walk, but a whole lot of different recombinations of ancient genes, which are some of which work and some of which don't. All right? A female frog lays about 10,000 eggs in her life, and of those, if she's very well calibrated, 9,998 die in various grotesque ways for each two that breed. Yeah. That's, that's the way it works. That is what natural selection is about. That is what Darwin and, and Wallace knew. And that is what we have in general forgotten. The real danger here is that your 15-year-old... It's complicated. Well, yeah. Your 15-year-old sat in a classroom in Pennsylvania. You're handed intelligent design. In the two weeks you've got to study it, it's not challenged properly. We don't have the complex discussion we've had here. And you think to yourself, well, that's nice and easy. I've not got to worry about Darwin anymore. Well, it seems to me that these two theories that's ought right. to be discussed in dialectic with each other, as we've been doing here. I mean, it's... And, and, and also... I'm sorry, I'm, I've got two professors of Warwick University here. No. Uh, um, and I've got a degree in, in postgraduate qualifications. I had difficulty following that. No, no, no. But the point is you, you, can't, you, can't actually, uh, you can't actually talk about these theories in isolation from each other. In fact, the only value uh, is not just as presenting them as kind of alternatives in, you know, in, in order, but rather to say, okay, what, what, what are the fundamental differences in the way these two theories scope out the phenomena? What are they stressing? What are they emphasizing? Are they able to illuminate each other's weak points? And, and as it were, that's the, that's the pedagogical value of the thing. It's not teaching just one and teaching the other. But teachers won't do that. You know and I know that well, teachers will see what problem. it says that's a different in, the, problem. in the textbook and in the syllabus, and what they will do is present, these are the arguments that's for A, no, these Steve, are the arguments you're, you're, for B. You're having your cake and you're eating no. it. On one, on, on one side you're saying it's a teaching tool, on the other side you're saying, well, it can't be used as a teaching tool. Of course it can be used as a teaching tool, it's just whether teachers will do that. I mean, we, we're, we're arguing two points We're here. not an ideal world. No, no, the teachers can't uh, do it. Jack, Look, let, we've, let's we've got... Two issues here, right? We've got uh, what should be made possible to be taught in the school books. And that's really what the case is about. And that's where all this business about teaching these two theories and teaching them in dialectic with each other is very important. Now, I was asked under oath uh, about sort of a very particular aspect of this, namely that when the school board went back and forth on this matter, while initially they said, you know, students should be made aware that intelligent design exists, they're only going to be tested on Darwinism. That's kind of what it's, how it stands. Um, but then, because they got worried about all the flack they were receiving, they basically said, well, um, well, you can tell students about intelligent design, you're not actually allowed to uh, discuss it with them. That's actually the state of play uh, at the moment in, in, that, in that school district in Pennsylvania. And... Um, 
basically, you know, I'm left, you know, holding the bag here, looking at this statement, asked by the plaintiff side, that is to say the opposition lawyer, say, look, Fuller, you know, look at this statement. This is not doing anything you want. They're basically gagging themselves. And my response, and this was reported in all the newspapers, was uh, it's better than nothing. Better than not. They're not having heard about it at all. I think we're arguing about the ideal case, right? We're arguing about, okay, let's say we had the textbooks, you know, in a way that lived up to what, what an ideal version of the statement would say, what would it look like? But the actual practice on the ground, sure, it's not, you know, it'll, it'll be mentioned and that'll be it. Okay, and, and are they going to talk about evolution and Darwinism? Well, maybe they'll talk about that too because students are going to be tested on it. But you can be sure that what they're going to say about it is going to be aimed at the test and not much more than it. Largely because the teachers won't be school. sufficiently competent. Right? The teachers will not be sufficiently competent in the intricacies of the theory. But there will be something else. And this is those kids, like most kids nowadays, will be looking at the Internet. And what they will find on the internet very quickly, if they look at intelligent design, is the green spaghetti monster. Mm. The, green, <laughs> the green spaghetti monster. The green spaghetti monster is proposed as the intelligent designer, and there are a group, there's a group of people who pretend to believe in the green spaghetti monster and want this to be given equal time with Christianity in schools. And it's quite funny. And we can recommend people to look at the stuff of the green spaghetti monster, and. I like that, and I guess that Steve does too, because it it means that although this is serious, and it's very serious, it's not solemn. And there are a lot of places on the internet where the ID debate is not taken to be the be-all and end-all of the education of these children, but is taken to be a rather interesting and rather parochial little argument about a little bit of theology, which actually might be better put in the Sunday school or in the theology class than in the biology class. Science is being mandated for political and theological reasons, and Behind it, there are large financial forces too. And that seems to me to be the whole problem with this issue. It well, there's financial being forces debated. on both sides. Come on. I mean, let's not, uh, let's not kid ourselves here. I mean, the, the, the American Civil Liberties Union, the reason why they're involved... I mean, they have, there's a lot of money behind this on the side of the plaintiffs, okay? I mean, because we're basically talking about a couple of school board members complaining against the entire school board. They don't have the money to flip the bill. Uh, so, so let's not kid ourselves. There's money on all sides of this issue. But there are also entrenched positions about what liberty consists of. Is it reasonable to suppose that anyone who has an idea, and intelligent design is of just this kind, has a right to be listened to? It happens that I think that my time, I'm 72, I've probably got five, eight years to go. I don't want to listen to people who haven't read a book about something. I, I, most people seem to me to talk nonsense much of the time. I do myself when I'm on subjects that I haven't read about and don't know about. And here it seems to me what the civil liberties side of this is, anyone has a right to teach our children anything that however supernatural and peculiar it is in science. I'm really upset about that. And if it should turn out to be a a financial issue after all, a political issue. Well, there are lots of things that go on in politics I don't understand. 
There are a lot of things that go yeah. on in teaching the, I the, don't the, the understand. Ca- the case isn't really quite as you put it. I mean, you, you, you're making it a little too easy. Um, it's case, not easy at all. No, because the only thing actually that you could legitimately bring up to the Supreme Court on this matter is whether, in fact, people are teaching religion in the guise of science. That's the only thing that would make it a, a constitutional issue. Yeah. If people are teaching rubbish in science courses, no matter what the theory is, that's actually allowed if the school board agrees with it in yeah, the United absolutely. States. The, and the United States Consti- the United States Constitution does not require that people learn science or good science or anything of that sort. It just requires that they're not indoctrinated in religion. And that's what makes, the, makes all these cases kind of hot button points. And of course, evolution gets caught in the middle of it because of its uh, role having to do with the origins of life and that conflicts with biblical views but that's why other areas of science don't have this kind of problem in the United States it's precisely because evolution intersects with the religious issues Okay, and religion is not allowed to be taught in the classroom and so whenever anyone brings up some opposition to the established biological viewpoint it's always seen as smuggling in religion And, and in fact the main precedent for what the plaintiffs want I'm to bring sorry, up... I'm sorry, I'm lost. You can't have an intelligent designer... If, if, if your intelligent designer isn't God with a capital G, then who the hell is your intelligent designer? An alien well, No, no, the, no <laughs> the point is you don't have to be... You don't have to be con- because we're talking about a science of design or intelligent, an intelligent design could be a human if we're talking about technological artifacts. That's why it becomes very important to understand what the not, scope of the science... About animals. Not all the time with design. Right, with people like Dembski, we're talking about a general theory of design of which, right, animals are only part of the story, where technology is also part of the story. You're talking about mobile phones as well as as animals. See, you're not quite getting what the paradigm shift they're suggesting here is, whereby it's about design, the nature of design, independently of who the designer is. And so the designer could be human, it could be God, God knows who else it could be, right? It could be a robot if you've got a kind of appropriate, you know, artificial intelligence theory. But this is what they say, if I can't understand, this is what I mean by intellectually lazy, they say, if I can't understand it, it must be supernatural. Well, look, I mean, see, this mad. is... I'm sorry, I think, is that true? No, see, this is where this, the argument gets stereotyped, and there's a, and, and, and certainly... Because I don't understand your position, Steve. You just said something to me that I just didn't Do get. you understand what design is? Yes. Okay. I made that. I'm a designer. I made this microphone. Okay, well, the, that okay, the design perspective basically imagines God's like you. Image and likeness of God. So whatever whatever you can do, God can do only in a big, big way. You know, in a, in, properly. in a big, big way, uh, but in a way that in principle we can understand and we can simulate ourselves. And this is what Newton did, right? Newton imagines the universe is a big machine governed by laws. You can imagine making a little machine that's kind of a simulation of the big machine. And this has been very important in the history of science and motivating people to actually do science in any degree of detail. The point, again, what is the point of teaching the science? It's it's to get students in a scientific mindset where they can try to understand how things have come about. The issue is not whether or not they end up believing in God or inferring God's existence. That's not really necessary in this kind of equation, right? I mean... It's it's the obvious inference. Of course it's the obvious inference. And that's why people are thinking Look, that this is a way assume, of getting religion into science. I'm sorry, when you assume a role, Steve, do you therefore become the person? If you sense? assume the role of God, do you become God? Do you, um, do you even imply the existence of God? I don't understand you, Steve. Have you ever heard of acting? Yes. What's acting about? Acting is about taking a role. Exactly. And does the role that you're taking, that you're acting in, does that role have to exist in reality? No. Excellent. Well, that's exactly the frame of mind you should be in with regard to the intelligent designer as being taught in the science classroom. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, so you don't need to believe in the existence of the role. You just have to be able to adopt the role. 
Uh, you have to be able to reverse engineer the point that Steve is making. Is I this so hard? Have you well. not done any acting? Um, yes, but I, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I'm, that's a yeah, I'm acting trying very hard to understand your position. God well, forget about God, okay? You should just forget about God from this. That's yeah. the problem. You're imagining, yes, there really is the God there that's lurking. That may be. Dembski may believe this, Behe may believe this, but you don't need it from the standpoint of science education, and it's not actually mentioned in the textbooks. What you, what he's saying here, perhaps I can explain it another way, Please. perhaps for our listeners. The, and if any, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, what he's saying is you come across a structure, a mobile telephone on a path, <laughs> a bacterial flagellum. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is, this is so complicated, it is so functionally complicated, it's so much the case that all the bits fit together, that the only way properly to think about this is as a designed structure. Now, if it's a tele- mobile telephone, you have no trouble in assigning it to technological design. But if it's a ductbill platypus or a bacterial flagellum, you have to say, well, just a minute, if there were a designer, let us look at the design of this and see how the function relates to its structure in just the way, what kind of thoughts would have to go through the mind of a designer who designed a ductbill platypus? How can the the bill of the duckbill platypus, which does this and has these sense organs, fit with these things and the poison gland and the fact that it's a, a, a mammal. How can those things together? What must have gone through the mind of whatever designed this? Exactly. Now, it, he, uh, Steve, allows that. I don't. I don't think that's proper science because I don't think there was a mind and I think that what Darwin did was to divorce the whole thinking of evolution from the existence of such a mind and design. And I think we don't have to go back to it, even in the schoolroom. I don't think we have to say to children, imagine you're a designer, how would you design the ductile platypus? I think after Darwin, we have to say, in which way do these bits of its anatomy and its morphology and its physiology fit with the life of this? Can you see how this primitive mammal came about? And what I'm saying, I think, is that by definition, as soon as you turn around and say, there was, I've come across this particular bacteria, how could it have been designed? What was the designer thinking of? I immediately start to imagine myself, imagine a designer out there, and as yeah. soon as I do that, yes. it's I, of necessity, come across theology. Yes. I, I actually see... I'm sorry, I'm trying very hard, Steve, but... you Again... Yes, I think historically it's true. The people who've been drawn to the design type of thinking have imagined there's a God whose mind they're trying to get into. That's not disputed. The issue is whether, in fact, such a God has to exist or whether you have to commit yourself to the existence of such a God in order to adopt that role. That's the issue. To adopt that line of thought? Yes. Clearly. God doesn't actually have to exist. To adopt that line of thought, clearly. You have to imagine yourself in the mind of someone like God, but it doesn't mean God has to exist. It doesn't mean that, that this, this is somehow some kind of uh, covert way of getting you to become a theist. Because that's what would make it unconstitutional, right? It would make it unconstitutional if, in fact, this whole line of thinking, this design... I mean, what I think... you of, believe in God. Yeah, yeah, because that's what's not if allowed in the Constitution. Said, look at that um, uh, duckbill platypus. 
Good God, isn't it wonderful? Doesn't it make you believe in God? Which is what Paley said about yes. his watch and finding the watch. It made you believe in a watchmaker. Finding a clergyman made you believe in God. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and, this, and, the, mm. and the thing is, I'm saying you don't have to draw that inference. You could just say it as a very useful way of thinking about the phenomena that can lead you some, some scientific... I know very few biology teachers who can make that very fine distinction. Well, I mean, this is another. This is the issue about whether what biology teachers know, right? I mean, in a sense, they're kind of much farther back in the argument than where we are here. And there we had to leave it. That was Steve Fuller and Jack Cohen of the University of Warwick discussing intelligent design.